Welcome to This One Life. Today on the show, Dr. Michael Greger. Michael is a physician, New York Times bestselling author, and internationally recognized speaker on nutrition, food safety, and public health issues. A founding member and fellow of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, Michael is licensed as a general practitioner specializing in clinical nutrition. We are discussing his book, How Not to Age. This is part one of our conversation. We will speak about how much better your life could be if you follow the basics of Michael's anti-aging principles, what the three most powerful pathways of aging are, and the six main parts of an optimal anti-aging regimen. We'll discuss whether too much protein kills you. Expect to get simple, practical advice that can increase the amount of high-quality years you live quite significantly. What is the most frustrating part about you trying to help people to age better? Oh my God, I can't even, I can't even look at all the nutritional noise and nonsense online these days. The peer-reviewed literature is bad enough in terms of conflicts of interest and shoddy science, but the internet just has no bar to entry, right? So the people just spout all sorts of craziness. At least like the, the flat earthers, aren't going to be killing anyone. Believing the earth is flat is not going to give anyone heart disease, right? Like the anti-vaxxers and the climate change deniers, bulking at the scientific consensus can sometimes uh, be harmful to your health. Uh, according to the Global Burden of Disease Study, the largest systemic analysis of risk factors in history, the number one cause of death in these United States is the American diet. Cigarettes not only kill about a half million Americans every year, whereas our diet kills many more. So the most important decision we can make every day is what to put at the end of our fork. And the flip side of that is that misinformation about diet may be the most dangerous. How could it come so far that our diet, what we put into our bodies every day, literally for decades, is the number one killer. Part of that is this tremendous success story in the public health field about declining smoking rates. So smoking used to be our number one killer. Then in 1964, everything changed. Smoking rates went up, up every year of the last century until 1964, then basically fell every single year since. And lung cancer rates came crashing down as well. And you say, wait a second, what happened in 1964? It wasn't that the science changed. We had good science linking smoking to lung cancer starting back in the 30s. We had a mountain of science going back decades. What changed in 1964? The first Surgeon General's report, again, smoking came out, citing six thousand studies. Of course, you'd think maybe after the first 5,000 studies, it could give people a little heads up or something, but it was a very powerful industry and took that long before the powers that be to just officially recognize the science. And we're in that exact same scenario today, where we have this mountain of evidence implicating diet, but it has yet to translate into public policy, into what's being taught in schools, what's being taught in medical schools, what the Centers for Disease Control is talking about. But we don't have to wait 
until the powers that be tell us to stop smoking or tell us to start eating healthier. We can take the health destinies of our own families, our own communities into our own hands. Before we move on to that topic and then also come specifically to your new book, let us stop this section with one of the most shocking examples where you think, hey, this is some of the worst commonly accepted nutritional wisdom, which is wrong in your opinion. Oh my God, there's so much. <laughs> I'm also going to take the top three. <laughs> uh, there's so much out there. I think probably at least in the anti-aging space, the kind of, I think the biggest misconception really about protein, which is really surprising when I uh, started sitting down to, to research how not to age, when it comes to protein and aging, less may be more. Reducing protein intake, meaning restricting protein intake down to recommended levels, is the only thing that I could find that could help block all 11 of the pathways of aging, boosting NAD, improving immunity, decreasing oxidative stress, inflammation, insulin resistance, as well as the cancer-promoting growth hormone IGF-1. Surprisingly, there is no benefit to adding extra protein to the diets of older men and women in terms of muscle mass, muscle strength, muscle performance. Instead, what you get, all that excess protein, is you're boosting the age-accelerating enzyme mTOR, reducing the pro-longevity hormone FGF21. So we really should strive to stick to the recommended uh, daily intake of protein, which is 0.8 grams per healthy kilogram body weight. It comes out to be about uh, 45 grams a day for the average height woman and uh, 55 grams for the average height man. Now, that's a thing where my eyes went white because I'm in that fraction of rather err on the side of more protein. So I'd love to dive deeper in, in, into that topic. So the first question is this, if it comes to protein recommendation, does that also hold true if that protein comes from, for the sake of simplicity, good food sources versus protein from your average processed food stuff? There's not that much protein in most kind of processed foods. But, but, but it's absolutely true. These studies in which they took men and women, restricted their protein down to recommended levels and saw all sorts of metabolic benefits were people eating the standard American diet. So they're probably getting most of their protein from animal sources, meat, eggs, and dairy. The question is, okay, yeah, if most of the benefits or even all of the benefits of protein restriction come down to restriction, restricting just specific amino acids like the branched-chain amino acids, like the sulfur-containing amino acids, like methionine, then maybe just even if you kept your protein intake the same and just switched from animal sources to plant sources, which tend to be lower in methionine, would you then see an additional benefit to restricting protein down to recommended levels? I think that's an unanswered research question, but we do know that, for example, when it comes to IGF-1, this cancer-promoting growth hormone, at high enough protein levels, it doesn't matter if you're getting all protein sources or animal sources, they both increase IGF-1 only when you get down to lower protein intake does it matter and you get that benefit from the plant protein intake. What you say about protein is really worrisome. Also for me, just personally, because I do have a lot, a much higher um, share of protein in my diet. How how accepted is that research that you're or that that conclusion that you're talking about, and ha and wh where does it come from that so many sources that even I, with knowledge in the space, would put down as they know what they talk about, almost 
preach the exact opposite of what you're saying. Yeah. If you look at the peer-reviewed anti-aging longevity literature, there it's not controversial at all, right? You look at the head of all the longevity centers like Walter Longo or uh, Luigi Fontana, they all advise cutting down on protein to live longer. And, and anyone who's, yeah, but what about frailty? What about sarcopenia? What about excessive age-related muscle loss? If you look at litter, literature, no benefit in terms of lead body mass, muscle mass, muscle strength, muscle performance from adding extra protein to people's diets. It just doesn't work like it does in younger individuals. And so you get all risks, no benefit, and pick your aging. Probably mTOR is probably the most well-characterized aging pathway. We have rapamycin, the most accepted anti-aging drug, works in every single species, even in midlife. What does it do? It decreases mTOR. How do we do that naturally with diet and lifestyle? Protein restriction, specifically methionine restriction. Uh, but uh, you can do that with caloric restriction, eating less of everything, or just cut down on protein, or you could shift that animal to protein, that animal to plant protein ratio, and reduce some of those deleterious amino acids. And that may explain why, for example, the NIH AARP study, the largest prospective study on diet and health in history, just a 3% switch from animal protein to plant protein, 3% of calories, is associated with a 10% decreased risk of premature death. The worst appeared to be egg protein, Switching plant protein for egg protein, just 3%, 20% lower risk of premature death. You look at the, the Harvard cohorts where processed meat came out to be the worst and switching any animal protein, including dairy and fish and eggs, poultry for plant protein led to a significantly decreased associated risk of premature death. And so that may explain it is because of the different ratios of amino acids, the ones we want to stay particularly away from. How easy in those studies that you cited is it to really isolate the effect from like switching between these types of protein and also making sure that when they switch type of proteins that before it was a, let's say, a good quality animal-based protein versus a good quality animal-based, uh, sorry, a plant-based protein afterwards so that you're not switching effects like going from generally unhealthy proteins foods to more healthy foods, which are typically more in the plant-based area or other type of lifestyle interventions that correlate with switching protein. Yeah, there, of course, studies are across the board, but one, you can, there's all sorts of different dietary interventions, but there have been some as granular as you take vegans eating no animal protein, and then you just add branching amino acids to, to their diet in terms of just specific supplemented pure amino acids, not talking about food differences at all. And you can make them as insulin resistant as omnivores. Similarly, you can take omnivores, reduce their protein intake, and within 48 hours, you can reduce that insulin resistance, which is the cause of prediabetes, type 2 diabetes. And so you can do those studies where you're just, with different protein powders and supplements, just moving specific amino acids. But of course, there's actually more benefits when you actually switch from whole food sources because basically kind of food can be thought of as a package deal. And so the benefits of getting protein from plant sources is because of kind of the protein package. You, as much as Burger King says you can have it your way, it can be like, yeah, can I get the protein and the iron, I'll hold the saturated fat, hold the cholesterol, hold all the... No, it all comes together.
And so whereas the baggage you get from the plant protein is all the nutrients that Americans are severely lacking in, like the fiber, like the folate, like the potassium. And most Americans are getting about 60%, 70% more uh, protein than they really need. Uh, but when you look at the dietary deficiencies, 97% of Americans don't even reach the minimum daily intake of fiber. 98% don't even reach the minimum daily intake of potassium. These are foods found concentrated. These are nutrients found concentrated in whole plant foods. So when we switch sources, we get all these benefits, lowering the saturated fat and the cholesterol, um, and while boosting some of these nutrients that we really want. So it's actually more than just the benefits of switching the amino acid pro profiles. You get these kind of bonus baggage benefits. I think a lot of our listeners who do prioritize higher protein foods. So two things that I want to recap on. So A, what you said is, hey, Think about how much protein in general you eat, especially if you get older. It seems that there is less and less benefit to it and more and more risk when it comes to aging. And B, when you consume protein, the likely better chance, uh, the likely better deal here is to do that via whole food plant based sources. That could also be the case because protein from animal-based sources often, at least in the standard diet, will be of lower quality. Lower quality in terms of the associated kind of nutritional baggage yeah. that comes along with it. Now, one could argue that you actually want to bump up protein intake over age 65, but we're bumping it up from 0.8 grams to one gram per healthy kilogram of body weight. Most people are getting like 1.3. So it's like restricting down instead to 0.8 grams per healthy kilogram of body weight. We're after age 65, we're still protein restricting down, but one could argue to a higher level of 1.0, which is like uh, pouring four and five grams per pound of healthy body weight. So I will mark that down as a follow-up for me, also for our listeners to dive deeper into this topic, because I, I don't want to sound disrespectful here, but this is so against the notion that I had in my head, this general reduction of protein levels, so that I need to process that for myself and also want to process that for our listeners. That has already been one very big thing to think about before going into the others, taking one step back because out of chance, we dive deeper here into one topic. When writing that book, How Not to Age, from the title, you can assume the, the general gist, but for you personally, what's the goal of your book and how can our listeners picture the likely difference between two people at the age of 60 one having followed, let's say, 70% of your insights in the book, the other living a standard life and diet. My aim with How Not to Age was to dig up every possible strategy for slowing down the aging process for the longest, healthiest life based on the best available balance of evidence. And look, the good news is that we have tremendous power over our health, destiny, and longevity. The vast majority of premature death and disability is preventable with a healthy diet and lifestyle. And in terms of impact, look, based on the on, on, on Harvard analysis of the impact that lifestyle factors on life expectancies can have in the U.S. population, at age 60, men engaging in just a few simple, common sense, basic lifestyle behaviors like not smoking, not being overweight, regular exercise, healthier diet, would gain 11 years of uh, life expectancy in women 
would gain an extra 13 years of life expectancy. So basically the difference between living to late 70s or early 90s based on simple lifestyle choices at age 60. And I would assume that next to the extra age span that the longevity, so the quality of the life is quite a difference. People are very superficial. Just for myself, picturing two people, one following these simple things that you mentioned, the other one not. Just think about the skin and you know how the nose will likely look like and, and how the body sacks and all that stuff. I think that's for most of the people, even though we don't want to be that, but we are so superficial. I think that's almost a more powerful motivator and driver to adapt some of these lifestyle changes. Oh, uh, yeah. No, certainly. So there's the health span aspects, just being functional, being able to do what you want to do when you're older. And then, yeah, part of the going into the book is, look, do I just talk about the kind of the biochemical pathways and get all nerdy about it? Do I talk about maintaining function, artery function, vision, all that stuff? Or do I talk about some of these more superficial aspects? Do I dive into what about Botox? What about different face facelifts techniques? What about skin creams, that kind of thing? And in the end, I just threw it all. I decided to just to just cover it all. Look, for people who just care about cosmesis, who just care about how they look, doesn't care how early they die or how terribly they die, there's something for them. For those who don't care about any of that and just want to live long, healthy lives, there's kind of something for everything. I really wanted to cover the entire field. You just said you were or are going nerdy in your book. How about we start with going a bit nerdy? We did that to some extent when we went into the protein discussion because you already mm -hmm. talked about some of the pathways of aging, and but from a more holistic perspective. So you talk about blocking the pathways of aging in your book. What are those in general? And can you highlight three of the either most important ones or the ones that you're most passionate about in terms of their potential of slowing aging? Uh, yeah, so that's uh, part one of the book where I talk about the 11 most promising pathways for kind of for slowing the aging process, ending each one with practical proposals on diet and lifestyle interventions to, to slow them down naturally. For example, boosting the anti-aging enzymes and hormones. So we're talking AMPK, FGF21, telomerase sirtuins, while suppressing the pro-aging enzymes and hormones, mTOR, IGF-1, and then chapters on decreasing glycation, inflammation, oxidation, senescence, while preserving autophagy, altelomeres, and uh, the kind of slowing the epigenetic clock. I think that covers all 11. And since they all interact, it's hard to single out the most importance, but I think if you had to pick three, maybe mTOR, AMPK, perhaps autophagy, mTOR is the enzyme recognized as a major driver of aging. I talked about a little bit explaining why rapamycin is the most effective drug ever devised targeting aging, expanding lifespan in every single species ever tested, um, uh, but has some downsides. We have to talk about that in terms of taking the drug for um, longevity. Non-pharmacological approaches to slowing this kind of pacemaker of, of aging is restricting those certain amino acids, methionine, leucine, via protein restriction in general down to recommended levels or switching from animal to plant sources. AMPK, on the other hand, is an anti-aging enzyme. It's an energy sensor. I actually talked about it a lot in my How Not to Diet book on weight loss. So it's activated when we eat less or when we move more. Some food components, saturated fat, for example, can suppress AMPK, while others like fiber can boost it. There are also specific AMPK activating compounds 
in barberries, black cumin, hibiscus tea, and vinegar, the acetic acid and vinegar. And, and autophagy is the primary system for cleaning the body from the inside out to get rid of some of the kind of cellular debris that builds up and may contribute to the aging process. Some food components like acrylamide, which is concentrated in potato chips and french fries, can suppress autophagy, while others like spermidine and the antioxidants in coffee can help your cells take out the trash. I'm happy to talk about more about any of those. I know that you have a couple of areas in your books where you specifically go into now what actually to do or to eat. So I don't want to dive too much into this here. When on the nerdy side, Let's follow up on two things. One on reptomycin, you, you said, hey, this is something that has been tested on, I would assume, non-human species, or at least has shown a non-human species to improve aging. So could you talk a little bit more about that? Where's the potential? Where's the danger? Because it sounds awesome. Hey, I could just pop a pill and age right. less. So there, I cover two, so I, I cover like every possible supplement that's ever been purported to have anti-aging properties, but two medications, one's metformin and one's rapamycin. Rapamycin, it, the story is amazing. Sounds like science fiction, like bacteria in a vial of dirt taken from some mysterious island creates a compound that prolongs life. Research is called a rapamycin, named after the bacteria's home, Easter Island, where those rock car figures are, known locally as Rapa Nui. So rapamycin appears to be a universal anti-aging drug, lengthens lifespan, every species, animal, organism tested to date, nothing else has been ever shown to do that. It can even work when started in midlife, which is nice. A lot of these drugs are tested from birth, and which if it only works that way, then there's really no hope for most of us starting this journey. The mouse longevity trials are truly impressive, but they're typically performed in strictly controlled pathogen-free environments. And so that's why it may not translate out into real world conditions because of the immunosuppressive effects of rapamycin alone are considered sufficient to, to really argue against self-experimentation with this drug. I know a lot of people are taking it. Now, they argue that, look, low dose, intermittent dosing uh, may not have those immunosuppressive properties. In fact, the reason why it's FDA approved and dirt cheap because it's off patent is because it's actually used in organ transplant patients to suppress organ rejection, to suppress your immune system so you don't reject an organ. And so that's what it's commonly used for. And that's why you can get a prescription for it. But uh, yeah, so the, and it can extend the mouse longevity, but that's because you keep these mice in pathogen-free conditions. And so if you could keep human beings in bubble boy pathogen-free conditions, maybe you'd get all the benefits without the risks. But, but uh, that's certainly a concern for those in terms of taking it on a grander scale. Okay, so you have the potential to increase your lifespan, but if you run into you know, a cold or uh, a coronavirus, then you're in deep shit. And now, so the, those advocates would argue, then you just stop taking it. And at the first sign of infection, stop taking the drug. Maybe your immune system can rally back or not take the drug during flu season because the leading cause of infectious death is really lower respiratory um, illness like pneumonia. So look, you have a pneumococcus vaccination. You stop taking the drug during flu season. There's all sorts of ways people try to kind of balance it. We'd really like to have a better idea of the safety profile before we recommend people self-experiment.
Yeah, you must have a very be very risk loving in order to take it. There might be an upside, but there also could be downsides behind that. Going to a topic of more practicality for most of our listeners, when it comes to an anti-aging regimen, you talk about the six main parts of an optimal anti-aging regimen. And I understand that there is a lot of nuance in all of these, and we're not going to be able to cover all of them. But for our listeners, first of all, as an overview, what are those six and a couple of sentences on each of them, what maybe the most important things to think about within each of these buckets are? Yeah, the six components are diet, exercise, sleep, stress, social ties, and weight control. In terms of diet, one can look at the blue zones, areas around the world with exceptional longevity, the longest, healthiest living populations. Based on more than 150 dietary surveys done in the blue zones, Blue Zones Organization came up with a list of 10 kind of food guidelines. And the foundation of the Blue Zones food guidelines is make your diet at least 95% plant-based avoiding highly processed foods, emphasizing beans as the healthiest source of protein, water as the best beverage, nuts as the healthiest snack. So that's the foundation. And then the last five are cut down on fish, eggs, sugar, dairy, and meat. In terms of exercising, um, even walking as little as 15 minutes a day, uh, achieving just 4,400 steps a day is associated with a lower risk of premature death with the maximum apparent benefit of uh, moderate intensity exercise, 90 minutes. So like walking briskly for 90 minutes or running or other vigorous uh, sources of activity for 45 minutes. We seem to plateau out at those kind of levels. Though, ironically, the it's controversial whether or not it actually affects longevity, but certainly helps lifespan, and I can talk more about that. Same thing with sleep, actually. The longevity benefits are controversial, but seven to eight hours are recommended. The detrimental effects of stress and loneliness, thankfully, appear to be mediated through alcohol, tobacco, and crappy food, rather than being independent drivers and in terms of weight, the ideal BMI for longevity appears to be on the kind of lighter side, BMI of 2022, uh, which is like 120 pounds for the average height woman, about 140 pounds for the average height man. What was that? The combination of, you said something about social and tobacco, alcohol. Yeah, high levels of stress and high levels of social disconnection are both associated with increased risk of premature death. But it's not the stress itself. It's not the bereavement or the loneliness itself, but it's mediated by the difference in lifestyle behaviors, specifically substance abuse, alcohol, tobacco, and unhealthy food. And so the reason why someone dies closely after their spouse dies is not because the stress somehow affected their heart, but because all of a sudden they start drinking more, eating less healthily. And so when you control for those factors, oh, then um, the effect of stress disappears. The effect of loneliness disappears. And so it's critically, so as long as you maintain that healthy lifestyle, the stress doesn't matter. The social disconnection doesn't matter. But because that's so tightly woven with how we treat ourselves, you can see these really quite remarkable associations with premature death. And you mentioned on sleep that there's actually no proven um, uh, connection to longevity. Did I get that right? It sounds extremely, that sounds extremely controversial. 
No, you think that's crazy. The exercise thing is even crazier. But yeah, um, the relationship between sleep and longevity is uncertain, mostly because we really don't have, we really can't do interventional trials. And actually, if you look at the, the association between longevity and sleep, it's actually worse, apparently, to sleep more than it is to sleep less. A lot that has been really dismissed by the medical community because they couldn't think of a mechanism. But actually, if you do interventional trials, we force people to sleep longer, you can actually get a bump in inflammation levels, systemic inflammation markers. So there is a kind of a potential mechanism, but yeah, if you look, so it's, if you could choose sleeping five hours or 10 hours, you actually would live longer of sleeping five than 10, but the, so it's this kind of U-shaped curve with the higher mortality, much higher on the, on the longer sleeping side, but the minimum where we're sh shooting for is seven to eight hours. Of course, there's confounding factors on both directions. Who sleeps longer? People without jobs. So there's like lower socioeconomic side, people who are depressed, people who have chronic disease. You can try to control for all that kind of stuff statistically. You still see that increased risk of mortality. We're not sure if it's cause and effect, but uh, there are certainly benefits to sleep beyond just longevity. And primarily that's immune function. So you can take people, do interventional trials where I give people, you put people through an all-nighter and then you drip rhinovirus, you drip cold virus in their nose and those, and you get dramatically higher symptom manifestations in those not getting enough sleep. Of course, they're 100% infection in both groups because they literally drip the virus right in their nose. But most of those who are getting enough sleep didn't show any symptoms, meaning their bodies were able to nail the virus before it was able to cause anything. They didn't even know. Whereas I think in that particular study, five times more in the sleep deprived group actually came down with cold. And that's because their bodies were just not able to rally. And there are absolutely benefits to sleep, but the uh, same thing with exercise. I mean, exercise has this huge long list of benefits, but cause and effect with longevity is actually controversial. When I try to roughly put this into a hierarchy, it seems that diet and being on seven to eight hours of sleep these two would be the highest two factors in the pyramid. No, I think it's basically diet and everything else falls way, way behind, right? So like in the Global Burden of Disease today, I think physical inactivity came in as like number eight in terms of leading killer risk factor in terms of years of healthy life lost, somewhere around eight. So number one, diet, number two, smoking, then it goes down. And so some of these things like inactivity, sleep didn't even make the list. So although BMI, weight control, but which is arguably most tied to diet, is, is high up there as well and increasing, unfortunately, year after year. Would this change if you would differentiate between actually your amount of years lived and the quality of the years that you have? Because there's such an at least increasing attention of, on the topic of muscle function and muscle strength in order to age well, especially when it then really comes to such things as how much can I still participate in life? Do I fall? No, absolutely. That's where the physical activity comes in. Physical activity improves muscle mass, strength, physical performance, decreases the risk of falls, minimizes bone mass. And that's just the beginning. That's just like the physical stuff. Exercise improves cognition. You think clear, enhances mood, can treat depression, improves artery function, erectile dysfunction, insulin sensitivity, overall quality of life. So uh, just absolutely no question, physical activity is critically important. But if you're just talking about longevity, then it's actually really quite controversial. So for example, when the rare cases of identical twins where exercise habits diverge, that's where you can tell whether it's the genetic predisposition to exercise or whether the exercise that's helped 
itself makes a difference in terms of lifespan. And with the same DNA, does physical activity make a difference? Apparently not. The same mortality rates are found in identical twins, whether they exercise vigorously or not. There's no way that I can discuss discuss or debate your expertise here. Just seems so counterintuitive that if you properly control for healthy exercise levels and one individual does that throughout their life and the other one doesn't and everything else is the same, that it wouldn't make any difference. It's so counterintuitive. It's crazy. This was and the reason they did these studies because you can take rodent models, you can take mice, and you can selectively breed them for high physical endurance, high physical capacity. And what happens? They live significantly longer. But to see if it's the genetic predisposition to exercise or the exercise itself, you then give them running wheels. And what happens? It actually decreases their lifespan. Voluntary exercise actually decreases their lifespan. So it was this genetic predisposition to exercise that, that, that accounts for this tight association between longevity and exercise, not the exercise itself. There, there, was, there were a couple of studies uh, with mice who, who one got a running wheel and the other one not. And, and the interesting fact was they actually also found a disadvantage to those mice who had a running wheel. The reason that they found was that the mice got addicted to the exercise because after the exercise, the brain releases dop dopamine and there was no other stimul stimulus in that, in that cage. The mice then overdid it with the exercising. <laughs> You can see that in people as well. So if you look at joggers, for example, you have this J-shaped curve. You have this where if you don't jog at all, you're inactive, then you have high mortality rates. And then you jog more, your mortality rates drop, but then you jog too much. And all of a sudden you start creeping up back on the curve such that people who overdo it may actually have the same mortality as those who are sitting on the couch and not jogging at all. And so look, exercise is medicine. And like any medicine, it's, there's a safe dosing range. And so you don't want to overdo it. But the people who overdo exercise is like one or 2%. The massive, huge problem in the United States is inactivity. Any exercise is better than none. So that really should be the main message. And that's what you hear from kind of authorities. They don't talk about the over-exercising because it's such a small percentage. But listeners to your podcast, really might be so motivated. And so indeed, I think that we'll find that the section of my book talking about exactly what counts as overexercise might actually be useful for them. Yeah, I think you're right there. On diet, we already have a podcast episode where we discussed and debated how much you really have to go to 100% plant-based diet. Our peace treaty was mostly plant-based diet, definitely whole foods, organic, and get rid of the processed foods. And then how much benefit or not benefit would you have with healthy, lean sources of any animal products that was still open. So if anyone is interested in that, they can go back to that episode and listen to that part. This was part one of my conversation with Michael. In part two, we will discuss how you preserve two of the top functions for most of us, sex life and your skin. In addition, we will learn about the anti-aging eight. These contain foods, supplements, and behaviors with some of the best opportunities to slow aging and improve longevity. And we'll put an extra focus on caloric and protein restriction.